more to obtain. There is more to press on for. That there is more that we can abound in. That there is more holiness to be sought. That there is more, uh, more things that are still yet lacking in your faith. Why? Because we all have things that are lacking. If we don't think that we're lacking spiritually, then we are not lacking in the pride department. We've got plenty of that, right? We need to see that we are lacking. Now, this does not mean that we are completely, we've got nothing spiritually going on for us. Rather, what this means is that we always have something that needs to go deeper, higher, and wider in the gospel of Christ to, to know God, to trust God, to depend upon God, to draw our strength from God, uh, to love one another more, as he's talked about in chapter 3 and in 4. He talks about how they've got that already. He says, I don't even need to tell you to love one another. You've been taught that of God already. The moment you're saved, you know to love one another, right? You, you know what that should look like. There are things that are the, the moment that you have gone from, from the old man to the new man, the old things are passed away, behold, all things become new. You are now a new creature with new desires, a new purpose, new thought process. You, you now desire to love the things that you used to hate, that you used to not care for. There's something new there. And, and that gift that comes is the Holy Spirit who shows us these things, teaches us these things. And we find here that Paul is not simply giving them some suggestions of going, hey, I've been there, I know you, Timothy knows you, so we think after assessing and getting our little powwow, we think you ought to do these things better. Rather, he's getting to the point, and the point is God has spoken, God has said these things, and this is what you need. We are exhorting you and encouraging you and giving what the Lord would give to you. Paul is not writing to give suggestions, opinions, or options for the believers. He is writing with the authority of Christ and showing what is expected of a Christian's life. We often think because we talk about being free in Christ that it comes without expectations. Now, that's not the case. And we're not talking about the law. Matter of fact, we, we are freed from the law. We are saved by grace. Praise God for grace. I'm thankful I don't have to come here today and show up with an animal to sacrifice. I'm thankful that I don't have to greet you guys out there and that you can't come in here and I have to sacrifice whatever you bring, right? I'm glad I don't have to do that, right? It would be terrible to have to go through such. We're under grace. However, aren't there still expectations for how a believer should live? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, he tells us in this passage that he's not called us into uncleanness, but he's called us to holiness. That is the expectation. How about this? Even as we're going to see today in verse 3, the will of God, even your sanctification. That's an expectation that you will grow in your sanctification. If you have been saved, there is now the expectation that you will grow. If there is no growth, if there is no fruit, then there's probably a problem at square one, right? We've got to see that. If there is real salvation, there will be a growing process because if you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, you get into the Word of God and you are obedient to get into local church and to get around other believers and to get under the Word of God, there will be growth, there will be fruit, there will be these things. These are expectations. Not that Paul has set. Paul is no legalist. Paul is no longer a Pharisee like he used to be. These are expectations of the Lord. God expects us, His bride, to be pure. When you got married, did you expect your wife to stay faithful to you? Did she expect you to stay faithful to her? I would hope so. If not, the whole point of I do and I do, may as well just throw that out the window, right? What would you even spend all the money for for the ceremony and some finger sandwiches, right? Pointless. Here we see you expected some things, didn't you? And we find that often when we look around at one another and when we begin to live with one another, when we begin to love one another, that we fail each other's expectations, don't we? But God does not fail the expectations that we have about who God is. He never fails. 
However, what we find is that the moment that we are born again, we are brought into not only the body of Christ, right, the church, but we are born into and made the bride of Christ. That we belong to Him. There's some expectations with that. That we should be a pure bride walking in holiness. We have often battled, and in the battle against legalism, we have forsaken living and preaching holiness. Or we have taken holiness to be legalism or pharisaical nonsense, and it's not. Holiness is the expectation of the Christian life because there's an expectation that we will no longer live as we used to live. The natural expectation that God gives for His people, according to His Word, is that if we have been saved from darkness, that we will live in light. If we have been saved from darkness, we will no longer continue to live in darkness. That we will no longer be controlled by darkness. That we will no longer uh, seek to be controlled by our old master, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what God expects from us, He enables us to do. God has given us what we need. He's given us His Word. He's given us His Son. He's given us His power. He's given us the Holy Spirit within us, always there to teach us, to correct us, to convict us, to encourage us, to bring us back to Christ, to bring us back to the Word of God. We have what we need to live the Christian life. We have what we need to meet the expectations of God, not to, in this way, gain entrance into heaven, because that's not the case, nor is it even to make God love us more. Praise God for that. I can't make God love me more or less, no matter what I do. God loves me. That's a beautiful truth that we can chew on, that we can dwell on. But what we do find is that there are some expectations that we are called to, and Paul is going to give that to them here. Verses 3-8 through is the large portion of this passage, and essentially what it's dealing with is purity. Now when you think of purity, you might think of in the past 20-30 years, we talk about purity an awful lot in a lot of churches, youth conferences and things, about purity rings, or about staying pure till marriage. We often think about what? Sexual sins, don't we? Right? Being pure. We think about a bride wearing white. Why? A pureness, a purity, a virginity about it. Right? There is a beauty in that. It should be desired. It should be preached. It should be taught. It should be lived for, longed for. When we go deeper into the Christian life, our goal Our great expectation, if you will, our natural desire as believers now should be purity. I should not be satisfied with being dirty before Christ. Right? I should not be satisfied with... I've got a dishwasher, right? I praise God for that dishwasher. I do. I I, I used to... Cammie's not big on dishes, so that's that thing. Hey, I got you, honey, right? I'll take care of those dishes. You, You let your man take care of that. I'll get in there. But having a dishwasher is great. Throw the dishes in. You pop the little thing in there. You close the lid. You boom, press the button. It, it does a little noise. After however long it takes, it's done. But you know what I hate? You pull it out, and then you've got one, that, that casserole dish that you brought to potluck at, at the church, right? And you open it, you flip it up, and you look, and it's 90% clean except that little bit of spot of grease or crust around it. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And then what do you got to do? You either got to one, hand wash it, or you got to scrub it off and then throw it back in, or you pretend you don't see it and you put it in the cabinet. You've got options, don't you? We've done some of option three, haven't we? Based on your response, I have two. That's okay. Cammie's not in here. Don't tell her. I won't tell if you won't. But here's what we find. 
I get so in my flesh when I see that. You know why? That dishwasher had one job to do. Right? Wash the dishes. That, that little pod that you stick in there that promises to clean all, these, all this stuff and to do its job and, and, and then even to, to dry it off inside the dishwasher and it doesn't fulfill what it's supposed to do, I get pretty irate. I'm going, I had an expectation that you were supposed to clean these things and to even dry these things, that all I had to do is take them out and put them away. You say, now this is kind of silly talking about dishes, but you know something? You and I are called to purity. You and I should not be satisfied when our life looks like that 9 by 13 that looks like it didn't even go through the cycle. We should not be satisfied when our life looks the same coming out of the dishwasher as it did going in. Does that make sense? You might be saying this morning, well, you know, my life doesn't look like it used to. Praise God. Does it look like it what it ought to, though? I know this about Pastor Joe. I know him pretty well. He needs more holiness. He needs to be more pure. It begins in our minds, what we think about God first, what we think about ourselves, what we think about the world around us, how we interact with the world around us. I know that my heart needs to be more pure. We know that about ourselves, don't we? Paul knew this about himself. He writes about this even about himself in his, in his writing to churches about how, oh, wretched man that I am. Now, that's Paul talking. A wretched man that I am. So often impure. The will of God is given here. For this is the will of God. That's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? That means what's about to follow is what the will of God is. If you want to know what the will of God is for your life, here's a portion of it right here. It's a call to purity. It's a call to holiness. The will of God for your life is your sanctification. And he describes what this should look like. And he begins that you should abstain from fornication. The fact that Paul even has to preach this is a problem. The fact that we have to preach it today is a problem. The fact that we have to address it with our own hearts today is a problem. <coughs> Excuse me. Stott writes about this verse. He says, It's not surprising that the apostle <coughs> begins with sex, not only because it is the most imperious of all our human urges, but also because of the sexual laxity even promiscuity of the Greco-Roman world. Now let's pause there for a moment. He's gonna, we're going to get into this in a moment to look at some of what they're dealing with in their day. Let me ask you, do we live in a sexually driven world today? Absolutely. You ever heard the phrase sex sells? Of course you have, right? Why? I can tell you this. Growing up, the, the most popular commercials that were there were sexually ex, uh, explicit women on cars eating burgers from Hardee's. That shouldn't have been. The fact that that was allowed on television tells you all that you need to know about where we are as a nation. And that was the mid-2000s. Now today, you fast forward, and it is everywhere. You can go on any smartphone in this room this morning, and you can have access to pornography in a matter of seconds. And the sad reality is that many of us in this room either have been affected by it, are affected by it, or, or are wondering, how is it affecting your body so badly? It's because <clears throat> it entices the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Do you know that statistically speaking, pornography affects the church as much as it does the rest of the world? 
Did you know that it affects women as much as it does men? And did you know that pornography is being seen at an earlier age than ever before? Eight years old. You say, how? Because we've given them smartphones. <laughs> and, and we've allowed them on social media. And you go anywhere from TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, <clears throat> and a countless amount of others. And it does not take long to find things that are impure. But Paul is not preaching any longer as Paul the Pharisee. He's preaching as Paul the Apostle sent by God, giving the word and authority of God. And he says, this is the will of God for your life, even your sanctification that you should abstain from fornication. Stock continues, he says, besides, he was riding from Corinth to Thessalonica, and both cities were famed for their immorality. And Corinth, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex and beauty, whom the Romans identified with Venus, sent her servants out as prostitutes to roam the streets by night even having temple prostitutes, right? Thessalonica, on the other hand, was particularly associated with the worship of deities called the Kabiri, in whose rites gross immorality was promoted under the name of religion. Uh, Guzik gives this and, and gives a little quip about this. He says, The ancient writer Demosthenes expressed the generally immoral view of sex in the ancient Roman Empire. This is what that, that man said. And he lived in the middle of it. He was a part of the middle of it. He says, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. And we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. That's atrocious, isn't it? It should be unheard of. And yet in the world today, it's not unheard of. In Paul's day, it was not unheard of. In our day, it is becoming more and more popular and normalized to have more people in a marriage than just male and woman, right? Now it is throuples. It's three in a marriage. I can tell you three in a marriage is not a marriage, first of all. No matter what anyone says, no matter what even laws get produced that say it's allowed, it's not. According to God, it is not. It is a farce. Then you go beyond throuples. And what's popular now is being polyamorous. Poly, meaning many. Here's the idea is that they open up their marriage to where the husband has a girlfriend and the wife has boyfriends or girlfriends. And this is what our children see as popular. This is what we've allowed. This is what we've turned an eye to. This is what we've seen come out of the wash and it's not been clean and we've just put it in the cabinet and pretend it's okay. These things are not okay. Paul addresses this because clearly there was some issue. They're living in and around sexual immorality. And what we live and abide around and in and often and quickly impacts us, right? You go back to the 9 by 13 dish. What you put in it, that's what now identifies that dish, right? whether it's dirty, clean, or not. And what you find is that there are some things that you bake in the oven with that 9 by 13 dish that stick more easily than others. Sin sticks pretty quick to our flesh, doesn't it? Sin sticks and it leaves a stain and it is difficult to remove. No amount of our scrubbing is able to do so. We need the blood of Christ. We need the Gospel, not just for our salvation, but for our daily sanctification. If I have any hope in this world to be a man who is pure in what he brings into his eyes, into his ears, into his mind, into his heart, I need the gospel every moment. 
so do we all. We must not think because I've been saved X amount of years or because I've done anything for the Lord. It's great if you have, but do not think that you are prone to, or, or, to, to, or that you might just not be affected by this. It is everywhere. We're living in a Corinth. I'm not talking about Carroll County being some sort of, you know, hellish, sexual, perverted place. But I can tell you it's here. We've seen its effects, have we not? And it's everywhere. It's on every phone in here, whether you get on it or not. It's there. The mere access is awful. Now, sanctification, the idea of salvation is this, that we are justified, saved from the penalty of sin. Praise God for that. You have to be justified in order to be sanctified, by the way. If there is no salvation, there will be no sanctification, right? That is that immediate step in our full salvation. The second part, if you will, is this. It's our sanctification. This is God saving us daily as we're consecrating our hearts and our lives and our minds, our bodies to Him. He saves us from sin's power. The longer that you serve the Lord, the, the more power over your flesh and your body you should have. You should know how to control your vessel, as we'll get into, right? What that looks like. We should be more disciplined, right? The, the moment that you get saved, you're not going to be incredibly disciplined because you know nothing. You're, you're still making messes. You're still trying to figure this out. You're still a babe in Christ. But as we mature, we should know these things. We should be not so apt to be under the power of sin any longer. As a matter of fact, we've been freed from that. And then we find glorification. That's the day that we long for. That's to be saved from the presence of sin. That, that there will be no more curse. So there is coming a day where everything that comes through my eyes and my ears and into my mind and into my heart one day will be pure because all that will be allowed in the presence of God will be pure. Nothing will be able to defile it. We look forward to that day, but until that day, we should be striving for such here and now. You can see in Romans 6 about this. Paul addresses it very plainly and very clearly. We're buried with Him in baptism that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. Not in the oldness of life. We shouldn't be satisfied when the oldness of life creeps up and tries to overtake our newness. We should live in the newness that has been given. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We should not. He goes on to say this at the end, towards the end of the chapter in verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. We no longer have to serve what we used to serve. We no longer have to serve our flesh. It's no longer our master. Nor does it have the authority over us anymore. Christ has gained this by His precious blood and sacrifice for us. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. And yes, as long as we have on this flesh, we still have some infirmity, don't we? This is why we must consecrate, yield our, our mind, our body, our soul to the Lord daily. Crucified daily. Even sin by sin. 
You must live at the cross. He says, for as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness, that's what we used to do, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have fruit unto holiness and unto everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He comes back here in Thessalonians and he writes and he says, you are surrounded and I am surrounded by sexual perversion and sin. And God's will is that we would not only just be sanctified, but that it would begin with us abstaining from fornication. This was a big issue. It would have been easy for them to slip into it when it's all around you. Sanctification is the walk of the Christian that sets them apart from the world and then sanctifies them for use of God in the world. It is God's will to sanctify you. Why? So that we would be used of Him for His glory. It is God's will that we be sanctified, not just so that we would not serve sin. That's a, that's a beneficial part for us. But then as well, we get to be a part of God's plan to see others come to know Christ. That we get to be used as His tools and vessels in this wicked world to shine forth the light of the Gospel. To shine forth the light of Christ. God desires this for us. God's will for you is to sanctify you, to set you apart from the world, and to set you apart unto Himself for His use. Sorensen writes, he begins his warning on a positive note, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The latter word is translated from agiasmav. It is... Agiasmas, which has the sense of holiness, purity of life. This is God's will for us. He had already been leading up to this in the preceding chapter where he had expressed his desire that by so walking in love, they might be unblameable in holiness. Now he makes it clear that it is God's will as well. We live in a world today that much like Paul lived in, there are plenty of false teachers and preachers. Paul had them all throughout. The early church was not full of just a whole bunch of perfect Christians who knew what to do and lived perfect lives in perfect churches. It'd be great if it was. We often romanticize the first century church. They had a lot of great things, but yet even Paul has to write about them, even to Corinth and going, hey, stop having relations that you're not supposed to with your family members. I mean, they weren't perfect by any means. They were having some serious issues. We find that we're having many issues in our own churches today and the world around us today. We hear preaching and teaching all around us that tells us that God wants us to be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise, right? That God wants us to live our best life now and a multitude of other things. God has given us what we can to live a great life, an abundant life, but it's only found in Him. It's not found in this world. This world will tell you how much you need the world. This world will tell you how much you need comfort. The Bible tells us not how much we need comfort, but how much we need Christ. How much we need holiness, not happiness. I can tell you this. The happiest, most joyful people that I know are people who are walking in holiness. I will take joy over happiness. Because joy expresses itself in happiness. Even at times of sorrow and grief and trouble, there can still be joy. I can tell you this, you're going to have a hard time finding joy in the midst of sorrow and tragedy if you are not walking blameless and holy before God. If we are not growing in a sanctified progression of holiness, 
you can expect to be utmost miserable. As a matter of fact, it is God's will for those who are Christians who are backslid or not living as they ought to live, it is His will that they would be miserable. Because they should not enjoy sin any longer. It is His will that they would, enj- that they would hate that and, and find misery in it so that they would then find the beauty of Christ once more. That's the whole idea of revival in the first place. For us to be refreshed about who God is and what He's accomplished for us so that we might return back to our first love, if you will. That's what we need today. We need a revival of holiness once more where we care much more for it than we do for being comfortable. When we get to see that holiness is our focus, growing and being separated uh, from the world, and separated unto God, we find that this is God's will for our life and that should satisfy our hearts, shouldn't it? All of us this morning would be spiritual enough to say that we want to please God. We want to do the will of God, don't we? And here it begins at some serious difficulties. It addresses our sin. The Thessalonians should specifically abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, the word that is used here is porneus. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? The word porneus meant any kind of sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage, whether it was fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, or bestiality. Let me pause there for a moment. The reason why this word is important is because there are countless people today who say that the Bible has never had the word homosexuality in it until the early 1900s when different translations started translating the word as homosexuality. That is, one, a misrepresentation of Scripture. Two, it is a misunderstanding of the word that is used here. Three, it is a denial of what God has ordained and said from not just one part of the New Testament, but from the entire account of the Scriptures. Right? We've got to understand here that this word is used for a reason. Any sexual sin is not acceptable. You and I often say, man, I can't believe they cheat on their spouse. When we should be going, I can't believe I would lust in a store holding my wife's hand. Do we see the the difference? We get irate over people who break up homes but we have broken hearts that are not totally pure for our wives' sake, for our spouse's sake, for our Lord's sake, for our testimony's sake. Paul hits heavy here, and I know that this is heavy this morning for a Sunday school. I, I get that. But Paul shows here clearly that there is a grave issue. That we desperately need to understand that there is no sexual sin that should be tolerated Why? Not just because it's sexual in its nature, but because there should be no sin tolerated in the life of a Christian. This is why Paul goes on to say, mortify, kill, put to death, slaughter, slay. Do whatever it takes to kill the sin that is within you. Wake up, crucify the flesh. Wake up, crucify the mind. Wake up, crucify your heart. Constantly, Live at the cross, get to the cross, and be crucified for Christ. Set apart for His use. Set apart from the world. We need to be pure for Him. He continues and says, in certain contexts, the term had a more restricted use and was distinguished from adultery. Now, as you see here, there's some, in the parentheses, some different um, 
quotations or references that are not biblical. The reason why we include those is because it shows that the word was used outside of the Bible to mean the same thing that the Bible uses. This helps solidify, and we don't even need that case, but it's there to show that the world, even the lost world, knew what these words meant. They knew what sexual perversion and immorality was. He says, but elsewhere, as in verse 3b, it embraced all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery. Paul does not call the church to partial moderation of their sexual impulses, but to abstain completely with all forms of sexual immorality. This was God's will for them. And what distinguished them from the people around them as those whom God had separated for himself. Paul talks about being separate from the world. There is something that has been lost today in our, in our life, and it is biblical separation. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about denominations getting in their corner and, and hating every other denomination. I'm not talking about this church getting in its corner and hating every other church that isn't just like this church or named this church. I'm talking about biblical separation where we are called to be separated from the world. He tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. And if it's a living sacrifice, it's offered up to God, which will be holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What would we call it? It's your expectation. It is a reasonable service that we would offer our lives, body, soul, spirit, mind, heart, flesh, for the Lord in pureness. Do you think we should give God our best? Of course, of course we do. Do you think we should God, do you think we should give God the nine by thirteen out of the dishwasher that's still not clean? No. He deserves purity. Now I praise God that He still loves me, even though on this side of the grave I will never reach full sanctification or full purity because I will continue to battle this flesh. I will continue to battle the world around me that presses down more and more. And we'll continue to do battle with our foe, the devil, who is a father of lies. But there is coming a day where I will be delivered from it once and for all. That day is my motivation for today. Because one day I'm going to stand before God. And yes, He's going to change me. Yes, He's going to glorify my body, and yes, I won't have to deal with the curse anymore, but I want to stand before Him knowing that I did all that I could to put to death my flesh. He then says in verse 2 of Romans 12, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is the perfect will of God? That we would not be conformed by the world. Well, how would the world like to conform us? Through sexual promiscuity. God's will is the opposite of the world's will and the devil's will. As a matter of fact, their will is set against God's will. When we were lost, our will was set against God's will. And when we walk in darkness, it is walking in a will that is contrary to God. He says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. There is no sexual immorality that should be practiced by the Christian or identified with the Christian. Sexual purity is an expectation to walk with God, but also distinguishes the believer from the sexually perverse culture around them. What we find today is that as we preach what God has spoken, declared, even what we preach, God's expectations here to be sanctified and to, to not have fornication in our life, 
no porneus, no sexual immorality of any kind, regardless of what it looks like or acts like or shows itself as, what we find is the world is going to hate us more and more. There will be those in the church who call themselves Christian who will dislike us more and more and say, well, that's old-timey. That's old-fashioned. They'll throw on words like it's pharisaical, it's legalist. We must preach the truth whether the world likes it or not. As a matter of fact, the, the world does not like the truth. The light has come and the darkness hates the light and comes not to the light lest its deeds should be reproved. What we must do today all the more is strive to make sure that we ourselves are pure before God. That we would ask the Lord to search our hearts and our minds. We talk about revival and there's been much talk about revival lately. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. However, there is a grave issue. We are much more concerned with other people being revived than we are ourselves. We are much more concerned going, we got people all around us that need to get revived. But we do. Revival will never come to us until we see our great need of our own revival. I'm not talking about just as a church, I'm talking about as an individual. And maybe this morning it begins with God searching our hearts and cleansing us of whatever is there. And as Paul has told them, and as he tells us today, we've got something in our Christian life that's lacking. We've got something still in that 9 by 13 that's keeping it dirty. I want to give God pureness. I want to walk in holiness. I want to be set apart, not just from the world in our own little Christian bubble, but set apart from the world and set apart unto God to be used in this world that desperately needs the gospel today. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. I know that this morning is difficult, even for myself, for all of us, God, to see these things because, Lord, it's just flat difficult. We constantly battle our flesh, but help us today to put it to death. We ask that now you would search us, prepare our hearts for worship today. God, that you would be honored and glorified, that we would lift up our hands and our, and our voices to you today, that we would be, as you told us, told us in your word, that we should be a living sacrifice to you. Help us to lay down our lives today, Lord, just to worship you, to know your presence. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you're going to do, what you have done already, and Lord, for how you would love to use us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.